yeah, there was one time I remember somebody told me that if you just like sit down and make a list of all the things that are like worrying you, when you get to the bottom, you'll feel a lot better. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll make a list. These are the things that could kill us in the next like two months. And I was like, okay, well, I guess the uh, New York AG could go criminal. Uh, the FBI could like, you know, announce her investigation. We could run out of money. The payment processor could switch it off. You know, we could get kicked off Apple. Like it was like 10, right? And these are things that weren't just like kind of bad stuff. They were all stuff like were terminal, terminal things. I got about at the end of the list and I'm like, this exercise totally sucks. <laughs> it's like, I feel way worse. <laughs> I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> this is the Digital Irish Podcast a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, and global leaders. This show was brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, a not-for-profit organization with a mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on today's show, we have an interview from a live event back in January, where Rachel Quigley of Digital Irish interviewed Nigel Eccles, who is currently the founder of FlickChat, and previously the founder and CEO of the extremely popular daily fantasy sports company, Fangio. And in the second part of the podcast, I chat with Blaine Doyle, who founded GlowDX to make women's health and sexual health tests more accessible in Latin America. For those of you who are living in the US, you may not have heard of Fangio. And if you are living in the US, you've probably seen their ads at some point, because they're everywhere. And what Fangio did, and how they became so popular is they capitalized on the fantasy sports market when they turned fantasy sports into daily competitions rather than a season-long event. So that meant that if you won your fantasy league, you got paid out that evening instead of having to wait until the end of a season. If you have no experience in this industry and you're wondering what fantasy sports is, it basically lets you create your own team of professional athletes. And then your team competes against other people's fantasy teams in a league. And if you win that league, then you win some cash and you usually pay an entry fee to get into the league. And you might expect that somebody who built what was at one point the largest daily fantasy sports company in the world would be sports obsessed or at least have a keen interest in sports. But Nigel is the complete opposite. He's a total outsider to this world. He has no interest in sports and he actually came into this from launching a startup called Hubdub out of Edinburgh in Scotland. And Hubdub was pretty unique. What they allowed was they allowed players to use virtual money to bet on future events. So they would predict outcomes in the world of sports, entertainment and politics. And the better you scored at those predictions that you made, the better you performed in your category. But Hubdub would eventually close down. But what it did is it introduced Nigel into the world of daily fantasy sports and eventually led him to found Fangio. Now, I can honestly say that this is one of the greatest stories that I've ever heard of a company that fought battles on so many fronts to stay alive. And I'm really delighted that we get to share it with you at this point. This interview was recorded in January of this year. So let's get into it and hear the conversation between Rachel and Nigel. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight for our first Digital Irish event of 2020. Our very special guest, of course, is Nigel Eccles, who is formerly CEO and co-founder of FanDuel. He is currently co-founder and CEO of Flick, which is a chat... Community? Yeah, it's a... Uh, so, hello, everyone. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Flick Chat is a group chat platform for sports fans. Um, when we were building FanDuel, one of the things we wanted to do was build a community uh, of fantasy sports players. And so we had to build 
all these things like forums and chat, wait for people to connect and talk to other users. And when I left FanDuel, I was like, then that was a real challenge because it didn't really drive any money. It basically, we had the financial part, which was people entering lineups, playing for real money. And at scale, we were doing 1.5 billion in entry fees per annum. But the chat part of it, which was actually really core to build a community, was kind of a pain in the ass and because it wasn't really core and we didn't, in the later years, we didn't really focus on it enough. And so when I left FanDuel, I was like, you know, I want to really build that and build this live chat experience so that it's kind of like being in a very large WhatsApp group, but it's all focused on particular sports events or particular sports teams. So Lakers, Cavaliers, really, you name it. We have those groups and you can go and join those groups and, and hang out with those guys. That sort of works. Great. Um, so just to rewind and, and kind of go back to the start. Um, so, of course, Nigel co-founded uh, Daily Fantasy Sports site FanDuel. Um, he grew up on a dairy farm in Cookstown in County Tyrone, which is the best county in all of Ireland. Yeah, we can um, agree on that. <laughs> and went to university in Edinburgh where he met his wife, Leslie, and along with her and three other co-founders, uh, they eventually started FanDuel, which started out as something else. And despite all that, growing up on a dairy farm in Tyrone, he had no interest in sports. So I would like to know... Explain yourself how you managed to, to co-found a company that basically has made fantasy sports into what it is today when you have no interest in sports. Yeah. Um, so it is quite remarkable when you look back. So, um, And building a sports company in the U.S. actually is – consumer sports car company is incredibly hard. When we became a, a billion-dollar company, I think it was in 2015, we were the first – consumer sports business to become a billion dollar company since ESPN. So something like, you know, 40 years difference. And um, so it was a very hard thing to do. Um, and if you were to pick the team that were to do it, and you had like a list of all these people, we would be at the very bottom of the list. So uh, let me just explain how bad we were. So we were, uh, there was five co-founders. Um, uh, we were all British or Irish. Um, so my wife's Scottish, I'm Irish. Um, to uh, two of my co-founders are Welsh, and we had one. Sounds like a joke, right? So <laughs> we all went into a bar. I literally, I literally met my co-founder in a bar. I literally met my co-founder in the bars, and we all said, "Hey, why don't we, why don't we start a company?" And the first company we tried to start was a uh, called HubDub. It was a prediction market. Um, and it was a really cool idea, and it was really fun. You could like trade predictions with people online, um, and everything was really cool. Apart from it didn't have a business model, which we suddenly realized it was a bad problem. And so we then said, hey, why don't we do what we were doing, this idea of predictions, but why don't we do it one with a business model? Um, and that was FanDuel. Um, the way we kind of figured out FanDuel was um, we launched HubDub in America from the start. Even though we were in Scotland, we were like, hey, let's launch in America. It's a bigger market. And we got a lot of users over here, and they were all trading it. And I was kind of more, much more interested in like the politics uh, vertical. We had all these different verticals. And I remember looking at it when we had HubDub, and, and we noticed, and I was like, hey, like politics is awesome. That's where I'm focused. And even though none of us looked at sports, that was like 70% of the traffic. So we were like, oh, wait a second, everybody's doing that, and we're all working on this. And so we said, why don't we like focus on sports, even though none of us know anything about sports? Like, literally, like, 
I, I think out of the five of us, like if you'd asked us what does NFL stand for, I, we might have got one, maybe two. Like it was like, we were literally, how many full games have you ever watched of like NFL? And I was like, you know, maybe one, maybe, you know, like, so it was, it was really bad. So, but we did have one of the guys in our team, we hired a guy as a customer service team and he um, played fantasy sports. And I remember sitting with him and saying, so what is fantasy sports? <laughs> the first question, then he kind of, okay, why do you play it? And, and it, it just kind of came from there. But the one thing that we did have, and we kind of turned it ourselves, is like, we clearly know nothing. We really don't understand this market. But we know we know that. We know we're morons. We know we haven't a clue. And, and we kind of thought, well, if we can create a product that we can use, then then anybody could use it because we are like the complete morons in this market. And that was our idea is at the time fantasy sports was incredibly complex and you had to like, you know, you had to have like somebody to sit through, explain this whole snake draft order. And we were like, we don't want that. We wanted to be as simple as possible. And that was our kind of saving grace in that anyone who came to our site after us were like, oh yeah, I get it. It's totally easy. Just do this, 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 and this. And we were like, okay. So that, that was kind of how we got there. That was a very good American accent, by the way. Um, I, so I read that you got turned down 86 times before someone picked it up. And I think that yeah. startups or anyone who's even tried to get a job, like it's Irish people in America even who've tried to get a job, uh, startups who have tried to get someone to invest money. I mean, I, I feel like everyone in this room can kind of relate to that in some way. Uh, can you talk about how you just kept going through all of those rejections? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I remember when, uh, I remember at that time putting together that list and we got 86 no's. And, and this is the worst thing about raising money is it wasn't 86 no's. It was 30 no's and 56, yeah, we're kind of interested. We'll get back to you. And then like, you know, you never hear from them again. So that, that was kind of the, it's the most, like, it's like, a, I guess it's like Tinder dating, but you're not very good at it or something. But like, it's, it's a lot of ghosting. Um, and then, and then you see them on Twitter, like talking, how can I be helpful? You can fucking reply to that email I sent you like last week. So it, raising money is, is a very, very painful, uh, and frustrating experience. Um, so I raise money for Flick, and uh, and I'm, I'm raising money for another startup. I'm, I'm helping get off the ground, and it never really changes. Like it's always like it's. I hate to say it, but it's a bit of a numbers game. Um, and so the biggest mistake I find that uh, founders make is they they kind of pre-qualify. They're like, okay, well, I want Andreessen Horowitz, Koya, you know, Greylock, and and I, and they kind of like because I've read their blogs and they're going to love this. And they have a list of like five. And I'm like, okay, get ready for five no's and then you're going to panic. And so I typically advise entrepreneurs to say like, start off with a list of 100. Like seriously, like start off and plan to like talk to like 20 investors a week for five weeks and you've talked to 100 investors. Um, so the doing that 86, I didn't find that that hard um, because like I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, I have this, um, I, have, I have a kind of, unrealistic kind of belief that it's going to be successful. It's not, like, wasn't grounded in anything. It was just like, because like, because if you looked at it objectively, like, this guy knows nothing about American sports. He knows nothing about fantasy sports. There's five guys in Scotland trying to transform an industry that is categorically a shitty industry. So, like, it really, you shouldn't invest in it. And they certainly shouldn't have a belief in themselves. But at the time, I, I enjoyed that part because I was like, I just know that I just need to get another, get to a yes, and 
and, and sort of, and I just need to knock at another door. Um, and I find that well, a lot of entrepreneurs, like it's kind of, they kind of like, they're so convinced by themselves and you talk to them and you go, this is a terrible idea. But, you know, the ones that are successful, they just keep going and some, then the really good ones, they start off that terrible idea and they turn it into something that becomes a good idea. Right. And off the back of that, now, this is something that I read, maybe true or not, don't believe everything you read on the internet, um, that you had to, at the start, to tone up your pitches. Oh, yes. And yeah. that, that is something, and again, <laughs> no offense to any Americans in the room, but for Irish people and something yeah. that I've personally experienced, like, again, for job interviews or anything, like, we're a very self-deprecating bunch. And when we go into a room, they're like, oh, well, you won that Nobel Prize. And we're yeah, like... Yeah. Ach, not really. <laughs> so I read that you had to tone up your pitches. Oh, yeah. Can you explain that yeah, process? In, in fact, we used to have two pitch decks. We had like a pitch deck for Britain and a pitch deck for America. Because <laughs> you would go in and if you got them mixed up, you were totally fucked. Because you would go in, if you go into the British one to like America, they'd be like, because what Americans would do is they'd go, oh, this guy's ambitious. Like, of course we don't believe those numbers. So like, we're going to, you know, cut it by like half or like 60%. And even then it's a pretty good business. Um, whereas in Britain, if you anything like looks ambitious, they're like, oh, you're not going to do that. Like, it's just not going to happen. And so you're like instantly lose credibility. And so we had to like, we had to sort of find what's the sweet spot for what they want. Like looks ambitious, but it's achievable. So yeah, we had we had two pitch decks, um, and yeah, I, I never like and, and overall we kind of toned up the um, trajectory. The funny thing is, um, we as a company. So this is a company that became a billion dollar company within from two thousand eight to two thousand fifteen. So uh, so seven years, right? So that's pretty good. Um, but we um, we missed our projections or early projections by two years at the start. Like, you know, it's kind of like, imagine you go on, you pitch investors and say, hey, we're going to hit these revenues. It took us two years longer to get to there than we did. But when we did, we started to then really grow. So, yeah, we had to, we had to ramp it up, but, like, we didn't hit them. Like, that was kind of, you know. I mean, I think seven years is still a, a pretty good timeline to hit, to hit a billion, uh, to make have a billion-dollar company. So when, two parts, when did you realize, like, we we really hit the jackpot here. Like we, this is actually, a, this is an amazing startup we have here. Or I guess, or was it a company by then? And also, how did you feel when it did hit one billion? When you became a unicorn? Yeah, they call this, it. This is this is gonna be a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> like we never really did. Like we, throughout the history of the company, we. It was always a very competitive market. Even when we raised a billion dollars. Like when you see a company's raised that billion dollars. By the time the news has hit that they've raised it, like just to give you an example, the year before we raised, so we raised 250 million that year, we raised 70 million the year before. By the time we announced it, we'd spent most of it, right? And we were freaking out because like CPA or cost per acquisition of each customer wasn't quite where we thought it was going to be, and LTV and the competition was catching up. So there was there was moments where you kind of realized it was like, oh, this kind of got big. But there wasn't really kind of extended periods of like, oh wow, we we made it. Um, it was always, it was always a pretty bare knuckle ride all the way through it. Um, and actually, it's probably only after we left the company that you kind of look back and said, actually, we built something really big. But through that entire time, um, it was 
apart from a few moments, it was all like, oh my God, every day was just dealing with like chaos. So it wasn't, there wasn't like a kind of like a, yeah, we made a point. Right. Before we get into it the chaos. It kind of sucks, right? Like you kind of yeah. think, oh, like when I get there, it's going to be amazing. When I announce on TechCrunch that I'm a billion dollar company, it's going to be like three weeks holiday and stuff. Yeah, it's not like a, yeah, I wish it was. So... Um, how much money did you raise all together for FanDuel? Uh, about $450 million. Right. And at one stage, again, read this on the internet, <laughs> you were, FanDuel was spending $500 million in one year on, in marketing. No, we spent th uh, $300 million in 2015. Oh, well, yeah. what's, what's well, $200 million? A couple of hundred I mean, million, million, give or take, yeah. I'm not in the, the advertising marketing uh -huh. business, but th that just seems crazy it's to a lot me. Of money. And, in saying that, I have no interest in sports or fantasy sports, but I do remember seeing all of the Fanduel <laughs> yeah. ads on yeah. TV and all the DraftKings ads yeah. on TV. Yeah. Can you talk, you know, to any marketing people in the audience, like, like how how does one even a company even get to spending that much on? Yeah, so um, it's a fairly simple process of sort of compounding. So our first ever ad budget which was in the spring of uh 20 oh, 2010 or no 2011 was when we started spend that was $30,000 um and from 30,000 to 300 million actually we followed a very straightforward path which is we spent $30,000 we acquired users for $50 each user required $50 and that user was probably worth about $500 so it was kind of very simple math, which is okay. I spent thirty thousand. Could I spend one hundred and fifty thousand? And so the next season, football season came around, and we were like, okay, let's spend a couple of hundred thousand. And we repeated it. We again did it for fifty dollars. And then the next year, um, I can't remember the exact numbers. Was like, you know, I was like, maybe we ramped it up to a million. And he said, yeah, we still requiring about fifty dollars and. Lifetime value is still about five hundred dollars. Next year was five million, and then it went to fifteen. And then, and then it just went up to like 300 million. So it just kind of just crept up on us. Right. As 300 million does. Yes, yeah. um, so you started in 2009 mm -hmm. and 2012 Kings came along? Yeah, our, uh, our nemesis. Yeah, yes. tell, us, tell us about yeah, that. So they launched much later. Um, like they essentially copied our product, um, uh, which like is not something you should complain about in the tech world like like there's there isn't barriers to entry um someone can copy something you can't patent it uh, we never tried and it would have been ridiculous to try to do so um and th what they sort of figured out was their strategy was quite simple is like we're going to do what you do but we're going to raise twice as much money and we're going to blow you out of the water and 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 I thought that was kind of crazy and it was, uh, but it kind of worked. Like, so um, in 2015, we spent 300 million. And we were like, wow, that'd be pretty impressive. You spent 300 million. They spent half a billion. And, uh, and, and it kind of worked, right? And so they moved from being sort of number two in the market to being neck and neck, actually slightly bigger uh, in the market. Um, but to get there uh, by last summer, they had raised $1.3 billion. So quite expensive um, and I still think it was kind of crazy I don't I don't think it was very uh, well jury's still out on whether their investors have a very good experience we'll still find out they're going to go public this summer um, like I guess it worked uh, they got to number one in daily fantasy but they had to raise a lot of money to get there uh, but at one point you were planning on merging 
Yes. But the FTC yes, yeah, yeah, uh, said yeah. no, because that would mean that you would have a monopoly. Yeah. Um, so at what point did you call a truce and decide, let's just join forces? Uh, that was early 2016. So n- not only did we collectively spend $800 million the year before, uh, but we had... Um, in the same period, this sort of provoked this, well, it didn't provoke, but there was a, an event and the New York Times just reported it. And there was this crisis in the industry of insider trading was the accusation. Um, it, was, it was an early representation of fake news, which you've, obviously you tell me yes, about. So, know about fake um, news. And, it, you know, basically what happened was there was an employee on, uh, on DraftKings who came second in one of our tournaments, um, which wasn't really that notable, but there was an accusation that he had used inside information um, to get there. And like we showed that that was not the case, but um, this thing snowballed. Um, and we had got big very quickly, and people were suddenly going, how is this even legal? Is this not gambling? And uh, we, uh, so we got really hammered by the press, And but then what we got hammered by was like um, uh, attorney generals, uh, uh, most notably Schneiderman in New York. Um, if you live in New York, you know, is quite a notable character. Um, but then attorney generals in 11, 10 other states. We had three FBI investigations. We had Southern District of New York. It, it was, it snowballed. Um, and the industry really was in crisis. And we really were in a position of from raising 300 million one year to not being able to easily raise money thereafter. And we really had to sort of cut our spend and kind of work through this this period. And so when we got to that, it was pretty clear. And and the other thing was during that time, like we got to know that DraftKings wasn't, um, was basically the same product, the same user base. Um, it would make sense to kind of merge the companies. And so uh, we spent a very tortuous, probably six to eight months, trying to figure out a way to do a deal. And then we spent another uh, eight months in, well, let me think, we agreed it in November 2016, and we got blocked in June, something like 2017. So that that period, the FTC was reviewing it, and they just took quite a simple view, which was, there's only really two operators in this market. Uh, And that was the key thing. We said, look, Daily fantasy sports isn't a market in itself. Like people have lots of other options of way to play fantasy sports. They can play on Yahoo, on ESPN. The market didn't even exist five years ago. Um, it'd be crazy to call this a market. Um, and so, as compared to ESPN and Yahoo, we're only small players, and they looked at it and said, "Yeah, we don't care about that. We think this is a market," and they blocked us. So, it was yeah a year and a half of my life that I'll never get back. <laughs> right. Brings me on to my next question. You know, when I was reading about Fanduel and you, there was just there was so much legal yes. stuff and that some I, of my I best friends are get, lawyers now. You know, it's kind of <laughs> I couldn't even get my head around it, and I, I can't even imagine like how exactly did you and and the co-founders and the whole company cope trying to get through that all of the legal issues that mm. seems like they were just being thrown at you every yeah. single day. There was something new that came up. How did you get through that? Yeah, yeah it's a good question. I, I think. Um, uh, it's funny, I remember about the time um, uh, we were in the middle of one of the crises, uh, remember the, the Martian with uh, Matt Damon? You remember he was like, you know, he's like stuck there on Mars and he's like totally fucked, right? Like everyone's like, you're totally fucked. There's nobody, nobody's coming back to save you. And 
and like he was like he managed to like just okay all I'm gonna do is like get through the day I'm gonna figure out how to eat <laughs> you know I'm gonna figure out how to do this next thing and I remember at the time thinking that's kind of my life you know it was kind of like because I didn't have time to think about the, all these sort of big issues where we're gonna get to we were like I have I have five four hundred and fifty employees um, and I gotta make sure that because. I want everyone. I don't want everyone freaking out. I want everyone focused on their job. We have a million users that love this product. We have all this stuff going around. I don't want people like freaking out about that. I want them like focusing on their job. Um, and I don't really have time to kind of worry about what might happen because uh, a lot of stuff might happen. Um, I got to just have like okay, the legal team are going to focus on that. The communications team are going to focus on that. The product development team and they've got to focus on product development. Um, so that was kind of the thing. It was like. We had stuff to do. Um, if you did sort of sit back and kind of like think about what might happen, then the danger was you would totally freak out. Because I remember, I think actually it was I told it was a, a journalist who wrote a book about it, and I remember telling him, and he, and uh, he, I said, yeah, it was one time I remember somebody told me that if you just like sit down and make a list of all the things that are like worrying you, when you get to the bottom, you'll feel a lot better. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll make a list. These are the things that could kill us in the next like two months. And I was like, okay, well, I guess the uh, New York AG could go criminal. Uh, the FBI could like, you know, announce sort of investigation. We could run out of money. The payment processors could switch it off. You know, we could get kicked off Apple. Like it was like, it was like 10, right? And these are things that weren't just like, you know, kind of bad stuff. They were all stuff like were terminal, terminal yeah. things. I got about at the end of the lesson. I'm like, this exercise totally sucks. <laughs> it's like I feel way worse. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that again. <laughs> so you just preempted my next question. So the, the whole thing was so crazy with DraftKings and FanDuel and all the legal issues that someone wrote a book. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't read it all, but I read some. <laughs> but I read that exact thing that okay. you made a list of all the ways that that FanDuel could be killed and. In the middle of it, you were still doing the media circuit. You were legal in 40 states, uh, valued a billion-dollar company, all of that. But you, in your head, were still thinking, well, when we go broke, yeah. this will happen <laughs> and that will happen. So yeah, like, yeah. even after all of this and surviving through everything, and you know, obviously this is a lucrative company and, mm. and you've only got DraftKings to deal with, like you still were going, well, you know, when we go broke or if we go broke, this is what's going to happen. Like, yeah. Is is that just the type of person you are, or, or were things so crazy that you you just thought? Oh like, no, it was any very day, real. Any day it was very, very. The plug's going to be pulled. You know, during the early twenty sixteen, yes, like there was um, there was a lot of very real risks to the company, and um, those weren't hypotheticals. Um, they were very real. Uh, like I, um, I've always enjoyed, and like, no, like Fangio was an amazing experience, but like. I just love being a startup. So, like, I actually don't, um, I don't actually mind that uncertainty. Um, like, I don't mind the, actually, the the worst thing that I can ever have is to be bored. Uh, if I'm bored, I'm a real pain in the ass. I'm a real nightmare to live with. And I find that startups give me this kind of, like, this unpredictability and the ability to kind of, like, just go and do stuff and actually have real impact. Like, I've... When I've been in larger companies, I've just found it quite frustrating that, like, okay, it might take me, like, three to four months to do something that might have an impact or might not. And I might never find out whether it does. And that, uh, th that to me, and if I get bored and I become, like, the worst employee in the world, um, I'll just check out. And I find startups is the one place where I can be where uh, it has just all this, like, 
unpredictability that just kind of keeps me motivated and stops me from getting bored. So I like, I like that. Great. So which brings us into after FanDuel, mm-hmm. then you decided to jump back into startups mm-hmm. and you uh, co-founded Flick. Yes. So a bunch of questions. Why? Why yeah, yeah, did you absolutely. decide to jump back it was in? Really well, funny. You, you kind of just answered so that. It's quite funny. So when I left, I left Fandil and I knew that I wanted to do it with um, one of my co-founders in Fandil, uh, this guy called Rob Jones. He's Welsh. He lives in Edinburgh. He's amazing. Probably one of the best product designers in the world. Um, and if he's listening, he's the best product designer in the world. Um, but he uh, he's just incredible. A great person, people manager, just such an eye for detail. Um, and uh, so... Just before Christmas, I'm like, okay, I'm going. I'm 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 thinking of doing something uh, with this product called Flick, and he he said, okay, I'm on I'm on board. Um, but just like, let, let me chill it over Christmas, and because uh, we'd both been like a ten year run, um, and he just wanted to chill out a bit. I remember like by New Year's Eve, I'm like, what the fuck? Why hasn't he like emailed me? I'm like, you know, don't you want to get on this? Like I was like sending my wife. I'm like, why 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 doesn't he like? I just want to talk to him like get ready and going on this and she's like would you ever give him a break he's like at one week in like 10 years not listening to you this is like he's trying to chill out i was like I remember like jan first i'm like okay new year <laughs> new startup so yeah yeah and flick start please correct me if i'm wrong but there was something to do with podcasts and its initial oh we, we moved all around like right, we're, there was we're, a lot of pivoting we're, we're, a lot of pivoting <laughs> yeah it's like we're not we're it's actually funny um We've changed a lot of stuff, um, but we actually the kind of core thing, the core thing that we believed, um, it remains true. So here's the thing we believed: we believe there's an opportunity for people to connect with other people on their phone around topics live. You know, you kind of like I want to talk to people live about Arsenal game or the Lakers or the Cavaliers or any other topic on the world and. You know, interestingly, 20 years ago, we had web forums, and they weren't quite live, but like people did like build like live communities, and that hasn't really translated to mobile. Like on, I can go to Facebook, but that's more like sort of family, and I know they are pushing groups, but it's not really a live experience. Um, and so we had a thesis that that there was this live opportunity where people can connect and uh, connect and, and chat to other people who are interested in that topic. And so we started off in sports. Um, for a bunch of reasons, we said, let's not do it in sports, let's do it in esports and gaming. We tried that, we found out that was a really bad idea. And then we went to um, podcasting, which we did earlier last year, and we had some success there, and we, continue, we grew in podcasting. And then we discovered that the podcasts that were doing the best were sports, and so we came back to sports again. And it's just kind of like, here I am, a, a, non, a self-confessed non-sports fan, condemned to start sports companies, which I think was part of the reason I got out of it in the first place. Like, I, I turned to my um, co-founder, and I was like, you know, I thought we were getting into podcasting. I could meet girls and, you know, hang out with, like, cool intellectuals. And here I am sitting with a bunch of sweaty guys like you guys, and we're back in sports. So I'm, I do sports. Uh-huh. I, I think... Uh, a, a big thing that, that a lot of people feel is, of course, imposter syndrome. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like launching a, a fantasy sports 
besides yeah, yeah, uh, totally. not knowing anything about sports, <laughs> you actually were an imposter oh, totally, rather yeah. than have an imposter. Yeah, syndrome. actually, it was an, it was one time it was a conference here. I think the conference is on this week. Actually, it's called the Fantasy Sports Trade Association, and uh, I was at it like one of the first years, and uh, I was beside, I was standing beside somebody, and they were like. Um, and they talked about the guy behind me, and I said, oh, who is that? And they're like, you got a fantasy sports company, you don't know Matt Berry? And, like, Matt Berry is, like, the, the, like, if there's a fantasy sports star at all, it's Matt Berry. Like, he's on ESPN, he's huge. And I was like, oh, fuck. I'm like, oh, he looks so different in real life. <laughs> like, think I got away with it. <laughs> so if Tom Brady was here, would you know? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'd be like, oh, he looks different with his helmet off. <laughs> And that's the only uh, football player I know, which is why I said that. Uh, okay, so just to kind of wrap it up before we go to questions, uh, what would you say, or do you even have a biggest regret from your years? In the, in <sighs> I don't know. Regrets are kind of tough ones. That they're kind of um, no, like we made, we definitely made mistakes. Like any, any startup that says it doesn't, like it was like they're lying. Um, we. Um, I know. I think we built. A, I I think we built a really good culture. I, I think I'd say no, let's not describe it as a regret, but I think it's one of the things going into my new startup is um, we um, we kind of trust ourselves a bit more, a lot more actually. Like we were, we spent a lot of time thinking that the answer was out there and the the person who would fix our problems was out there and they would know things we didn't, and and sometimes they did, but. Um, and, and I don't know if we relied on our, I don't know if we kind of trusted our own instincts as well as we should have done. And in, and in retrospect, and that's the thing that I'm fixing in a new startup. It's not like we, we're we hiring people from outside all the time and, and trusting them. But in some of the kind of the bigger issues, um, particularly cultural issues, we were like, actually, you know, if I think something's wrong, then it's wrong, right? We just we just don't do that. Um, so that that's probably the biggest one that I've changed into our new startup. And what advice would you give to people just starting out, like who have just started a startup mm -hmm. and are looking for investment? Uh, and, and then also, besides that, once a startup is up and going, like how do you lead that? How do you take your, and after the, the roller coaster that you went through, like how, how do you lead your employees through that and tell them like everything's going to be okay, even if you don't really believe it yourself? <laughs> <laughs> um. There's lots of good startup advice out there, like without a doubt, and then much more than there was 10 years ago. Um, some of the most fundamental ones, like, and again, there's a fundamental one for life, which is choose the people that you work with really well. Um, and uh, and Paul Graham talked about founders, and he said, founders, who you choose as a founder is like location for property. It is the most important thing, and you can't change it. Um, and that, as I've gone through my career, I've started to realize that the thing that I fo should focus most on and, and, and want to be keep trying to be better at is like just finding really good people um, and you know working with them. Um, and I think if you do that well, then I think other things start to like go well because you're working with really good people. And so that's that's the one thing that I try and sort of focus on now is like look I you know find really good people to work with um, and and work with them and, and then you'll have you like at a minimum you'll have you'll have fun <laughs> but much more likely as you'll have a very positive experience and how did you lead them through the craziness 
um, how do we lead them through the craziness? Um, I think, again, read somewhere that you were very transparent. Yeah, oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, we were, we were. I remember, like, and that, and that was a cultural thing from very early on. I, like, it was interesting with the company. When the company went into crisis in 2015, 2016, um, the people in the company who handled it the best were the early employees. And I think the reason they were handled the best was they'd already seen crises. Like, you know, early on, like 2011, we nearly ran out of money. I remember uh, 2000, was it 2011? I remember we took them out to the Christmas market in Edinburgh and we went to beers and, and uh, he said, why are we going out for beers? And he said, oh yeah, we, uh, we nearly ran out of money, but we got money, so we're, we're having beers. And he was like, great. <laughs> and so and, uh, he phoned his wife and he said, why are you out? And he said, oh yeah, yeah, we nearly ran out of money, and, but we're, we got money. And she was like, you nearly ran out of money. <laughs> so yeah, we were always really transparent about it. Um, and, and I think that did definitely help. People were like, okay, we're not hiding anything from you. Like, if, if things are bad, we'll tell you. Um, and I don't know. I, I think we just always try to focus people and say, look, there's a lot ton of shit out there. There's nothing you can do about it. And like, and, and you know, at the end of the day, if like, if they go criminal, if things go really bad, then we just have to shut it down, you know, and then we go and do something else. Like, it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, and I think a lot of people are like, yeah, actually, yeah, maybe you're right, you know, like, and so... Um, I think that was one of the things we were just quite candid to say, look, this is the situation. These are things we control. I want, and these are things you personally can control. You can control whether you build, do good code, you like build a good product over the next six months. You can't control what the FBI is going to do, what the New York AG is going to do. So don't worry about it. Like I want you to focus on the things you need to focus on. So, you know, that was my strategy. Nigel, that was amazing. Thank you so, so much for, for coming here. And that was Nigel Eccles. What a story. And if you want to know more about Fangiol and their battle with DraftKings, you can actually read about it. There was a book written called Billion Dollar Fantasy, the high stakes game between Fangiol and DraftKings that upended American sports. And now we shift our attention to the startup section of the show, so we can hear from Irish founders around the world and the companies that they are building. I recently chatted with Blaine Doyle, the founder of GlowDX, which is a medical diagnostics company based out of Mexico City. Blaine met his co-founder, Yancy, who was from Honduras while he was doing a master's in molecular cell biology at UCC. We began talking about kind of Irish or, or European healthcare versus Honduras and Latin American healthcare and kind of found that these two things were just complete opposites or on two different sides of the same coin, basically, in terms of... Um, where they were at and where they needed to be and kind of what she experienced. At the time, Blaine was working in a community biolab in Cork and got introduced to some people at SOS Ventures, the very active VC firm that's founded by Sean O'Sullivan. Bill, one of the, the, the partners within SOS Ventures, was on the board of that community biolab. We kind of started talking to him and he was like, well, I'm starting this accelerator uh, in the bio EU, um, which they had one already in, in San Francisco. Why don't you guys apply? And see what happens, you know. So within kind of a month of that happening, we were kind of, I suppose, got an offer from SOS Ventures. But kind of the the main thing about taking the offer was you got to drop out of your masters. Don't regret it. I have since gone back and finished it, but still um, was a big deal back then because I had promised myself it. Yancey at this time had one condition for Blaine if they were to move forward with this business together. He had to go to Honduras and experience the culture and health system for himself. 
got on the plane, went to Honduras. It was my first time out of Europe. I traveled a good bit of Europe, but I'd never been outside of Europe until then. So that was a, a culture shock and a half. And about three days into the trip, I got dengue fever. I got to go through the public healthcare system. I really saw what it was all about. And um, I think, you know, there was, there was different aspects of that trip, but that was definitely one of the main ones where this became, you know, uh, went, went from a problem that definitely should be solved to a problem where, you know, now I'm actually completely, you know, I suppose personally and emotionally bought into this, this problem and we really need to solve this. And when Glodiex launched, their main focus was on dengue fever and mosquito-borne infections. But now they are making medical products for women's health and sexual health more accessible in Mexico, where it's still a very taboo market with extremely high prices for the consumer to get these tests. It brings and democratizes access to to diagnostics for women's health and sexual health by basically going direct to consumer. So we cut all of the kind of middleman nonsense out of, of private healthcare and referrals from clinicians and laboratories and all of that. And we let women buy a test online. It goes direct to their house. They take it in the comfort of their own home, their office, or, or wherever they may be. And we turn around that sample in up to in, in less than 48 hours. And they basically get the results back. We're the only ones direct to consumer. So with a lot of these kind of tests, I mean, unfortunately, in, in kind of Latin America, you know, if you're getting a chlamydia, gonorrhea, HPV test, whatever it may be, you might be perceived as promiscuous based on that on that test. Um, and I mean, the ways of getting this test are through public health, but really you're kind of targeting kind of the, the lowest kind of 60% or 40 to 50% of the market through that. Um, you can then go to basically refer to, to a private laboratory. So there's, there's a bunch of queues and everyone's going all over the place. So it's, and I mean, if you're, you know, male or female and going, getting to the top of that queue and you're kind of going, well, what do you want? You're like, well, I want a, want a gonorrhea test. Uh, it's not, you know, the, the thing that you, you want to say, you know, especially in kind of a, a Catholic influenced society, um, you know, a little bit more closed than we would be here in Ireland. So it's, it's um, yeah, it, it's, that's kind of, we're providing that confidentiality and taking that kind of taboo out of getting tested. And, um, and that's kind of the main reason why people come to us is, is to kind of, you know, get the, the privacy and the kind of confidentiality from us. And then kind of the last thing with the market is if you want, you want to get tested for a whole maybe 13 different STDs, which is, is one of our full panels, um, you're talking about a significant price tag on that because these, it's not something that is typically ordered from these laboratories. So as a result of us basically only doing one thing, only marketing one thing and focusing on this niche of the market and then talking specifically to millennials and kind of Generation Z, which is, you know, a lot more liberal within Mexico, um, we're able to build up the volume and basically offer these tests at a, at a price that makes sense. As this is the first startup in Latin America that we've featured on the show, I was curious to know if Blaine saw opportunities in that market for other Irish companies. Huge, huge. And I think, you know, even though the cultures are very different, I think out of Europe, we're the best nationality to go in there if we could all just learn Spanish. Because, you know, again, we're not, we're not, we're not similar, but we are a little bit. You know, there's, there is similarities yeah. I think that we can, we can eventually warm to and, and work with. So it's a matter of um, of understanding that part, but definitely, I mean, in agriculture, in fintech, in healthcare, I think there's huge opportunities. It's just a matter of networking hard, um, you know, understanding the dynamics of the market and how things work over there. 
And as always, if you can support Blaine and Glodiax in any way. My ask for, for your listeners is basically, I mean, if you're in Latin America right now, I would love to kind of hear from you if you can help us basically to uh, to expand what we're doing right now from Mexico into your country of, of, of operations. So whether that's Colombia, Colombia Chile, uh, Brazil, or, or wherever else. So I'm interested in kind of hearing from people who can help us to get incorporated uh, or get things moving on the ground with distributors, especially with pharmacies. Um, that's particularly interesting to me. And equally from kind of the, the global um, network, basically, um, if you've kind of got connections within the kind of, I suppose, the, the private equity slash venture capital space um, with an interest in either impact investing or investing in Latin American companies, I would be extremely interested to talk and kind of get a, a take on, on their view of, of Latin America right now and where things are going. Uh, because I think it's it's an amazing space to kind of get in, get involved in right now, just as things are beginning to take off. If you want to get in touch with Blaine or learn more about the company. So you can contact me on Blaine at Glodiex.com. So that's B-L-A-I-N-E at Glodiex.com. Or you can just go to our website and on the top right, there's a investor.relations. Uh, basically, if you click the button, it's going to send an email to me. Um, you just put your email address in there and basically we'll get talking that way. Um, and also then at the very bottom, there's a, a contact me page where you can contact us as well if it's not about investment or not about kind of uh, connecting with people from investor side of things. Um, you can equally do that too. And um, yeah, look at, I'm happy to kind of connect over LinkedIn as well. I want to say a huge thank you to Blaine for joining me and sharing the story about GlowDX. And thank you as well to Rachel and Nigel for such a great conversation. And thank you for listening to today's show. These are slightly unusual times that we're living in, so I hope everybody that's listening is safe and healthy at this time of the coronavirus. And if you want to reach out to us or have any suggestions, please get in touch at hello at digitalirish.com. And if you want to learn more about Digital Irish, you can visit our website, which is digitalirish.com, or you can message us on social media with the hashtag digitalirish. Also, if you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and review the show. It helps us so much in getting more exposure to a greater audience. And you can also find out more about the show by listening to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcasting platforms. I would like to thank Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast. <laughs>